Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to The Pathless Path. I'm Paul Millard, and in this podcast, we examine the invisible scripts that run our lives and dare to imagine new stories for work and life. Welcome, friends. Today, I am talking to Tashin Fogelman, who describes himself as a extremely online wandering quasi-monk, perhaps the only human on the planet with such a description. Uh, I love that. On an indefinite pilgrimage for the benefit of all beings. Welcome to the conversation, Tashin. You're so welcome, friend. Uh, I I don't know why I said that. I'm just amused. (laughs) Yes, thank you. So you describe yourself as living a simple life, dedicating your life to being of service, supported by the generosity of others and focused on spreading love, following your curiosity and empowering others. Excited to dive into all that today. I also got a peek at a book you're working on and I found the beginning just very powerful. So I thought that might be an interesting place to start. It's really kind of your story of growing up and never quite fitting in and, um, how that felt, which I imagine was not great. But maybe you want to tell us a little more and talk about how that has laid the groundwork for where you are now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, to be honest, I, I don't love the intro to the book that I'm writing. And I, it's not actually published yet, so I might change it, but I think I'll keep it. Um, it feels something like melodramatic to me or something in the way it's presented, but it, but it's compelling. It's strong. Right. Yeah. And it's all true. It's all hundred percent true. Um, so it's not, it's not like a lie, but um, yeah, I sort of listed out difficult memories from my childhood and times that I was bullied or, or felt alone and um, even, um, you know, just extremely depressed and um, you know, it's, it's kind of intense. There's a content warning on, on the book, just in case it's that, that section of the book in case it's, too intense for someone, but, um, yeah, uh, I think there were definitely beautiful parts of my childhood and I didn't, I didn't write about them there, but those were sort of the most difficult memories. And I think, yeah, a sense of not being quite at home in the social groups that I found myself in and being strange and different and weird and like really wanting to connect to people, wanting to have friends, um, and yet not really finding friends that were very good to me or um, that I felt very close to. And thankfully, of course, in my adult life, I feel just blessed by an abundance of wonderful friends and the internet has sort of brought me the the weirdos that I needed then. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. Uh, 
but yeah, that's that's sort of what the intro is about, and and hopefully it puts into context um, why why finding a sustainable way of being happy would be meaningful to me. Um, meta practice and, and um, the Brahma Viharas and, and practicing this this love has has sort of allowed me to access a happiness that's that's not dependent on having friends or uh, certain circumstances, and um, I think that put it into context. Yeah, I just want to say, I mean, you have to figure out what feels right for you, but I thought it was actually very relatable in just a deep human way. I did I didn't find it melodramatic at all. You're mm. really talking about like wanting to be friends with people and sort of being rejected and I I think most people have experienced something like that. Mm-hmm. Right? It mm-hmm. gets down to these deep desires we all sort of share. So this this podcast is ostensibly about kind of life paths, life journeys. And one of the interesting things I like to explore is what are the scripts people grow up with? So I've discovered we all sort of have some sort of script or idea we have as a young person that says, do these things as an adult and you will be a good person, a successful person, insert any of your adjectives. What was your working model of the world, no matter how detailed or abstract? Hmm. Wow, I'm not really sure. I, I I know one thing that feels very resonant when you ask that is just how dissatisfying all the ones that came to me were, um, mm. and almost like they bounced off of me. I was like, "This is not no no like I don't I don't want this." Um, I think, um, for example, I have a very strong memory of being on a bus in. I think maybe the fifth grade and noticing that I was like on track to finish elementary school and then go to middle school and then go to high school and then go to college. And then I'd be done with my learning. You know, it's like, Oh, then you'll be done. And (laughs) education is over. And I was like, no, 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 I want to keep learning. I want to keep growing. Um, It felt tragic to me that that was how learning was supposed to happen in our society by default. You know, I was aware that like graduate school existed. I don't know what I, I don't know, but I knew that, but I was like, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. But um, I know that, um, you know, later actually, when I was considering graduate school, one of the things that felt uh, also dissatisfying about that was it specializing. It's like, I don't, I don't want to specialize. That's, that seems gross. (laughs) Uh, I don't want to be, the best at this. I want to learn a lot of different things. And um, yeah, so that was one. I never felt compelled to have a traditional job. I've, I've very briefly held, quote, traditional jobs. And then those also just bounced off me. Um, it's like, no, thank you. I don't, I don't want to have 40 hour work weeks and a nine to five and uh, a 401k. It's just like, it, it, it just didn't make any sense. It was like this you're someone speaking a foreign language. So I, I don't know so much if there was one compelling narrative that I thought, oh, this is what it is, so much as just being really dissatisfied, the ones that I did find. Yeah, and that's sort of something I've noticed is a lot of people are dissatisfied with the default script, but they don't have an alternative story to go mm-hmm. towards, right? Being against something yes. is easy, but going towards something is actually hard. And we'll probably dive into that a little later. Um, if I could mention, yeah. I think that's probably, I, I only started considering joining a monastery when I was maybe 20. I don't think I'd, I mean, I must've heard of them, but I never considered it. But when I started meditating, it was like, oh, that's actually a script that makes somewhat sense to me. You know, it wasn't a common script. I didn't know anyone that trained at a monastery at that time. 
But it's like, that actually makes sense to me to do that. Um, so, yeah. What do you think about it uh, resonated? Was it just sort of escaping from the default mode? Was it something more positive that was drawing you to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely wasn't escaping. I, I think um, it was... You know, I, I started. I had started meditating, and I was, you know, was a year or two in, and just very clearly saw this is worth doing. This is a good thing to do. I'm not very good at it. I need to get better at it. I'm not going to get better on my own. I need support, a teacher, a community, an actual place of practice would be helpful. And um, I had seen already at that point in my life how being surrounded by people who are doing trying to do the same thing is very helpful. And so it was like, yeah, if you want to get good at meditation and spiritual practice, then a monastery is a good place to do that. Yeah. So talk to me about that decision. How did you decide to commit to that? Were you, did you end up going to college? Where were you in your journey? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was in college and just increasingly, I, I started meditating as a sophomore and like, as time went on, it just became of increasing interest. And when I was a sophomore, I considered dropping out to go join a monastery and ended up deciding to uh, keep going with my education and finish my degree. Um, but I considered that. And then when it was time to graduate, I was thinking about it. And um, the main, the main sort of challenge became what monastery would I join? Because one thing that was very clear to me was I, d I didn't resonate with, you know, traditional, monasteries that I was aware of because it's almost like, um, I don't know, uh, you know, but basically I wasn't, I wasn't from the cultures that a lot of these mm. traditions were designed for. So even if I respected them as like, I'm a contemporary American kid, you know? <laughs> so, um, that's why I really resonated with the monastic Academy when I found that it, it wasn't called that at the time, but it seemed like they were trying to create a real authentic monastic tradition for, contemporary Westerners. And I was like, okay, that's, that's the one for me. Yeah. And I think that's how I first discovered, uh, ran across you and also, um, the Emerge podcast and mm -hmm. show is sure you, uh, sure you for all, um, was involved in that. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about like what the mission of the monastic Academy was. I, I thought it was a very unique kind of mix of like this active leisure mode um, mm. while also in this contemplative mode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, I left there about a year ago and so I'm not sure how they'd currently frame their mission, but I think there was on the one hand an emphasis on real rigorous contemplative practice in a monastic structure designed for Westerners. So different than traditional Asian monasteries, for example, but inspired by them, um, aimed at the same levels of rigor. And uh, on the other hand, a commitment to being of service in the world, to making a real difference in the world, uh, an awareness of the various complex problems that we're facing at this time, um, and how could it be possible to resolve those and create leaders that have the skills needed to address those problems who have real practical skills in the world. So it also had this aspect of leadership training and learning how to run a nonprofit. And, you know, I learned to fundraise there and other things, um, just very 
practical skills that you need to run a nonprofit, start a company, have some kind of impact in the world. That's amazing. And how long did you spend there? I trained there twice, sort of like two tours of duty, if it were the military. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was there for two years, left for a year, and then went back for another almost three years, so almost five years in total. Yeah. I think it's like awesome. one or two months shy if you count it all up. Yeah, so you, so you ended up leaving there, and it might be a good jumping off point just to talk about how you think about your path. So I think the, your writing that I most resonate with is when you're talking about your path. Um, mm-hmm. You have this quote in one of your essays, you write, do not do the things you know are bad, do every good thing you can and purify your mind so that becomes clear to you. Um, mm-hmm. When did that as sort of a compass for guiding your life uh, become central to you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that I, i'm not sure where specifically you found that i definitely put that all that sort of idea in a lot of places but that is to my understanding a rewording of the buddhist three pure precepts which comes from mahayana buddhism which is uh, essentially do good things don't do bad things purify the mind that's the path um and you know i chanted that every day for years. And um, that's one formulation of ethics from Buddhism. There's others as well, like the five precepts and um, other forms. But but the three pure precepts is, for Mahayana Buddhism in particular, like an ethical foundation. And that's, that's sort of baked into me at this point. And um, I think you know, there's also a passage in Peace Pilgrim, who I who I've been tremendously inspired by, that that's very similar, where she talks about like if there was something I knew I shouldn't do, I stopped doing that, I relinquished it. If there was something I knew I should do, then I got busy doing it and just kept going. And um, she says the way she describes it is as I lived according to the highest light that I had, then more and more light came to me. And at a certain point, um, I, yeah, maybe it's when I left the monastery, maybe in the months preceding it. But I started to realize that um, I think I think a sort of spiritual maturing happened, where instead of trying to follow a tradition or a teacher and sort of externalize my spiritual authority to someone else, um, which was a reasonable thing to do, it, w- it was very reasonable that I did that. I realized that that's not going to work anymore. I have to be my own authority, and in particular, live, follow this teaching of what Peace Pilgrim describes as living your highest light and um, doing that. So that means, yeah, again, doing the things that I felt called to, not doing the things I felt I shouldn't, and trusting that even more than um, specific you know, prescriptions given from traditions or something like that, really trusting myself and my own wisdom as, as high as I could. And um, yeah, I think that the more and more that I've leaned into that over the months and years, it's just uh, unfolded in its own its own time and way in a really beautiful way. One of the themes that pops up in a lot of people's paths is very similar. I think there's this sort of apprenticeship phase in any life path. Mm-hmm. And Robert Greene actually talks about this in his book, Mastery, where it's like embed yourself in the system, find an apprentice, and then leave the apprentice. And then he has this line that stuck with me, mostly because I had found some apprentices in my former path while I was reading this. And he says, most people stay with the apprentice far too long before embarking on their own journey. Mm. Um, 
And it's interesting how that seems to show up in all paths, career paths, um, spiritual paths, different things like that. Um, do you think everyone has a natural path? I don't know if that's mm. the best way to put it. Well, um, you know, that metaphor means different things to different people. Right. Um, but the way I look at it increasingly, um, y- yes, everyone has one. And uh, it seems to me, I find it useful to think that there's basically two things that we're here to do with this life. One is to learn lessons and the other is to give gifts. Um, and it seems to me everyone has lessons to learn and gifts to share with the world and everyone does learn lessons and everyone does give gifts through their time and different people learn different lessons, different people give different gifts, but, um, looking at life as basically an education project and a service project has been a very helpful frame for me. Yeah. Yeah. Has that been freeing for you in terms of just, um, getting more at ease with your journey? You know, I don't know that I would have thought to use that word, but absolutely. Because um, one of the problems that I have with the concept of, say, a a life purpose would be, oh, there's something specific you have to do. There's a box you either check or you don't. You could fail, you know? Uh, And that, that just, that creates for me a sense of like overwhelm and like dread and worry that's just has never served me, you know, um, personally. And instead, if I say, oh, you know what, I'm alive and I'm going to learn some lessons and I'm going to do my best to be of service, then uh, try just try my best. Then that attitude of, you know, curiosity and just making an attempt is, uh, you know, a much help, more helpful frame for me emotionally. Yeah. Yeah, that resonates a lot. I think. I see so often this like this deep desire to be known, right? To know what your path is, right? And it, you'd probably agree with like the path that can be named is not the path you're supposed mm-hmm. to be following. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yes, we sort of have this wishful thinking of, okay, I have the thing I love doing, and I can make money doing that and serve the world, and it's like that seems to me misguided. Um, Mostly because do you really think like the unique economic circumstances of this moment, this year is perfectly aligned with Mm. like what you're meant to offer the world in terms Mm. of economic rewards? (laughs) Uh Uh It seems like only the people actually reaping those economic rewards are bought into this sort of way of Mm. seeing things. Hmm. That brings up for me just, I feel like money is another one of those things that I never felt particularly compelled by, um, you know, it's increasingly useful. I have good uses for it, but it it was never like, oh, let me make a lot of money. Uh, I don't know. It's just a tool at this point. And um, yeah, I think also just reminds me of like, I think one of the reasons that you can't name it is no one has ever done what you need to do before. Uh, you have never existed before. There's no, there's no life manual just for Paul or just for Tasha. And it's like the book you get when you're born. That's like, here's what you need to know about how to live your life specifically. No one's written that book. Um, and so you, you have to discover things about yourself and your relationship with the world that are, that are unique, I think. Yeah. It becomes way more clear too once you leave an actual path that a bunch of other people are also on. 
mm-hmm. or at least like the legible path, right? So I was in a certain career type path and I could look around literally and see, okay, that person over there is has somewhat same path as me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was never really true, right? I was approaching each day, each moment in my own unique way. Mm-hmm. And now being self-employed, it is painfully obvious, not painful, it's very freeing actually that like only I can do this crazy weird combination of stuff I'm doing. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then and then from there, once you figure it out, you can describe it. You can put it into words, but because you've lived it and no one else could have pointed you to that thing in advance. And then I think people can provide a helpful function of, of sort of reflecting their best guess to you of like, hey, this is what I see you being good at and what I see you doing that's like helpful for steering, but um, no one can provide the whole of that ahead of time for you, I think. Yeah, just my day today is very weird. I did a lesson in Chinese today and then um, I'm doing a small consulting project for a steel company Mm. and now I'm having a... (laughs) Of conversation with you about life paths. Yes, wow. <laughs> and then I'll I'll be teaching my wife um, later today uh, how to drive. Um, okay, so I'm quite, quite certain that is like one of one. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. I know what you mean too. But if you, if I were to take stock of each of my days, they would look not at all the same, and yet very similar flavor of weird mix of things. Yeah, so. Arriving here is non-trivial though. I think I'm five years into this sort of do-it-yourself path and it's been confusing, um, non-intuitive and a big thing for me really was reconnecting like with my body and like Mm -hmm. listening to that intuition that says like you are not meant to be doing this. You Mm -hmm. need to walk away from this and those walk away from these often can be things that like give you other benefits, right? So like one example is leaving my job. One of the questions I ask people is, will people love you less if you give up your current path? And the hard reality is sometimes yes. And so to find like that deeper connection, fulfillment, meaning in life, you actually might need to short-term give up all other stuff as well um, to kind of get there. Is that Does that resonate with uh, things in your journey and things you've had to give up? Hmm. It does. I think um, right before I left the monastery, there was a confusing period of two, three, four, five, six months, depending on how you count it, where I was debating leaving. And um, I think it was very confusing for me and for other people that I was thinking about leaving. And, um, you know, I'd I'd been very dedicated to training there and to being part of that organization. And then suddenly it was like this pull to to leave. And um, I think at the very least, I'd say it was confusing for me and maybe other people. Um, I don't think anyone disliked me because of it or something. I I could imagine a different circumstance that happening, but um, yeah, I think I feel like there's sort of two signals there with the body that you receive in your life. And one is, one is sort of pain, discomfort. You're like, Oh, I don't like this. And then another is like joy, enjoyment, fun, pleasure. And I think the more you 
and it's it's not that you want to like avoid discomfort or, or or challenge or something like that. But if there's like, oh, I hate this kind of pain, then that's meaningful information. And then, yeah, if you're just like delighted by something, then that's also meaningful information. And um, trusting the one and trusting the other and steering in that way is, has been very helpful. And um, yeah, I think it takes courage to follow that, even if other people might not like where you end up going. So I'm testing out an idea. I, mm. One thing that occurred in my path, and I've noticed this in other people's paths, is before you take that next step to the, towards this new thing or walk away from something, there's often like this last stand mm. when you're almost like moving in the opposite direction of trying to talk yourself into doubling down even more mm. on that existing path. Did mm. that uh, did that happen with you as well? You know, I I think that's that seems true. I think I look back at a lot of the blog posts that I wrote during that time, and I think on some level I was really trying to persuade myself, like this is the thing to do, and this is the right thing to do. Training at this monster, I I went through I went through yeah months of basically rotating very quickly between I have to stay here forever and give my life to this and be very dedicated to this and. Um, I have to leave right now. Like I have to get out right now. And I would just like, I would watch my mind, you know, from a meditation perspective, just flip from one world to the other hundreds of times a day. And, um, you know, to some extent I was really trying to persuade myself to stay and that that was the good thing to do. And ultimately I think that there were certain values that I really valued about being there that I had to find a way to continue to, honor and embody those values when I left. And I didn't know how it would be possible to live in accordance with those values if I left. And that had to sort of get resolved with time. Yeah. And so one year out, um, how do you think about your journey path and the vows you're making right now? I feel, I feel, um, frankly, just blessed. I feel, um, one of the components of the path in Buddhism is right livelihood. And I feel like a lot of the last year has been about finding right livelihood and living that. And it's like, I mean, obviously I'm still living my life and there's more to learn and grow, but I feel like, yeah, this is the right livelihood. This is the way I should be living my life. And now it's time to actually do it and um, follow through with it. And um, yeah, I feel that that feels like such a blessing. Yeah. And how, what role has like finding the others played for you? I think we, you were talking earlier around how you had this idea, like I can't be a generalist. I need to mm-hmm. like pick one thing, right? Or at least mm-hmm. that's the message society gives us. And it was the same thing for me. I always had this like, I got to find like the thing, the thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and luckily with the internet now, I find other people like you that just have these weird, vast, diverse mm-hmm. um, interests. Um so has like finding the others, especially through the internet, been a big part of like making you feel more comfortable in your path? Oh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I've been on Twitter for years and uh, Twitter has just increasingly been a source of finding delightful people that are very inspiring for me in so many ways. And, um, you know, one of the things I did in, in leaving was starting a podcast and it was just like, hey, I want to talk to a lot of people about life and answer questions that I have, see how they see it and 
I might as well just record the conversations and post them uh, because I'm going to be having them anyway and people might want to listen. And um, that's, you know, that's really helped me to step into a certain way of seeing people that's been very fruitful for me of basically looking at every single person that I meet as someone that I can learn something from that has some kind of wisdom or skill or uh, insight to share with me. And also someone that I could potentially offer something to as well, that I could help them in some way. And, you know, in practice, I may not actually learn something from each person I meet. In practice, I may not be able to help each person I meet, but really looking for what is the wisdom here that I could learn? What is the way I could be of service here in each interaction? And just repeatedly talking to so many people on the internet um, has been just a very real training ground for practicing that way of seeing and feeling blessed to be taught by so many diverse, incredible people that have so much wisdom and knowledge and, um, yeah, and then also helping them as well. And, um, I think that that the internet is just amazing for that. Um, there's, there's so many specific skills or pieces of knowledge that I, I, it was almost like I was hungry for and I couldn't find, um, even in a book or something like that. It's like, but this, this one person that lives somewhere totally different in the world, like has this thing that is like, it's like a food group that I need. I need it, you know? Uh, and I can, the more I, the more I look at things that way, the more I can, it's almost, yeah, like a, a taste or a smell where it's like, oh yes, I, I see this person has the thing that I need. And I just, I like run towards that. Do you think the Buddha would have been on Twitter? Uh, you know, I don't know about the Buddha, but I often think about Peace Pilgrim. Um, she, she, she corresponded heavily with people. She would have mail delivered to places for her ahead of time. And then she would write letters to her and stamps and letters and, and a pen were one of the few things she carried with her. And I think she would have loved the internet for that reason. I think, um, you know, I, and who, I could who see the Buddha Peace going out of the way. Just for, just for yes. people that don't know, can you tell a little bit more about Peace Pilgrim? Yes, happily. Uh, the Buddha is very well known and, and rightly so, but the peace, peace pilgrim is not well known and wrongly so. So happy to answer that. Uh, she was a mystic, spiritual activist, spiritual teacher in the last century. She, um, she was the first woman to walk the whole Appalachian Trail in a season, actually. And, um, she, she did that years before her, her proper pilgrimage, but she spent basically the last roughly 30 years of her life on foot walking across North America, something like seven or eight times. And, um, she just lived a life that was dedicated to teaching mankind the way of peace is how she talked about it. And she was very concerned about war and other kinds of uh, conflict in the world and wanted those to be resolved. And for her, she saw very clearly that peace starts within and that you have to come to a kind of internal peace in order to have external peace, but you still need the external peace. And so she was trying to teach people that, and she did that through her example. And um, she has these writings that have just very deeply touched me. And um, I think more than anything, her teachings have really formed the basis of the way I look at my life, even, even more than the Buddha or, or Taoism, both of which have been huge influences on me. Um, but um, yeah, she's an incredible person, incredible person. Wow. Definitely, definitely want to do a uh, deeper dive. Um, thank you, you can order the... her book for free, importantly. Oh, uh, wow. There's a digital copy and then there's a website you can like mail away that you can give them their address and they'll mail you her book for free and uh, definitely recommend that to folks if they're interested in her. 
Beautiful. That, that was a wonderful lesson. Um, you just gifted us. So <laughs> well done. Um, might be a good segue to talk about gifts. Um, so I like how you describe it. Uh, your gift is where your skills and dreams meet the world's needs and problems. It's an act of service and is deeply joyful for you to give and that the world is deeply grateful to receive. Um, when did you first start, start thinking about gifts as a frame? Hmm. You know, there's a lot of synonyms for this, what this is pointing yeah. to. The one that we were talking about path earlier could be one, um, you know, life purpose is a very common one, mission, quest. Um, the one that my teacher shared with me was vow, which has a long history in Buddhism. Um, increasingly, I find the word gift really resonant. Um, I think, um, yeah, it's only really been in the last few months that I've started to double down on that there, you know, there was a moment, um, I don't know if, um, it makes sense to share this whole story, but there was a moment right in, in 2020, I did a very long solitary retreat, um, did a lot of retreat in the first half of 2020. And I had a conversation with my teacher at the very end of that, where one of the things he said to me was, uh, give gifts now. He said, give gifts now. And it was that I had received a tremendous gift in the opportunity to do deep solitary practice for, for months and that it was time to focus on service and being of benefit in the world. And I really made that the basis of my life for the months that followed and um, was delighted to see that not only was I being a benefit to others, but, but that act of giving was itself joyful and rewarding for me as well. And I think there's a kind of maturing that happens where like, I remember as a kid, I loved getting gifts. I was like, Ooh, what's my present going to be? What toy will yeah. I get? You know, uh, very and it's like, yeah, we're, you're very American, you know, and it makes sense. It's nice to get a gift. Nothing wrong yeah. with that. Um, but at a certain point you realize, Oh, it's nice to give gifts as well. And it can even be more satisfying. And, uh, so, um, and, and how satisfying is it to give, a gift that only you can give. You're the only person in the world that can give a certain kind of gift. And so, um, yeah, I think that's increasingly just been the basis of my life is what, what kind of gifts can I give the world? Sometimes it's a, a conversation or a podcast or a blog or, you know, a dance party or a guided meditation. There's lots of kinds of gifts and I try to give all the ones that make sense to give. Yeah, I was influenced a lot by Charles Eisenstein's uh, book, Sacred Economics, where he talks about mm. gifts. And I just loved, it helped me reframe a gift as like sort of this transactional thing I grew up with, maybe around Christmas or birthdays. And instead think about it as like giving without the expectation of receiving anything. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you do receive something, you may not know when. It may not even be in this lifetime, right? So... Mm it was still deeply uncomfortable for me to sort of practice that, but I've reframed generosity as a practice rather than like, just as a thing you do. And I think it's a skill you can learn. Did you mm -hmm. go through your own um, journey with reframing generosity and gift giving? Absolutely. I think um, a few things there, but one, one that comes to mind is, as I mentioned earlier, I, I did some work for fundraising when I was at the monastery and had to learn how to do that. And I saw very clearly how not only was the act of generosity that people would give 
funds to support the monastery. That was essential for the functioning of the monastery. And also that that was actually a gift for the person that was giving the money in a way that they, they benefited from that. Not only, but I'd say primarily by practicing this virtue of cultivating generosity, where that, that's actually a virtue to be generous. And, um, in, and actually I think that, um, in the Buddhist spiritual path, the first step is right view. And I think generosity is one of the best ways to practice right view because you are saying my actions have consequences. What I do matters in a way that, um, I think really breaks down a lot of the harmful views that can be in our culture of like what I do doesn't matter, that my actions don't have consequences. When you make a gift, you say, no, what I, what I'm doing does matter and my actions have consequences and therefore I'm going to do something that's good for the world. And you practice that way of seeing. And so I think it's actually a gift to give, um, to have the opportunity to give. And I saw that very clearly. And, um, yes, I think that, um, making my life based on generosity has been one of the most powerful things I've done both. Okay. I am going to try to give all of my gifts to the world as an act of generosity. I will try to do as much as I can on a generosity basis of like, you know, most of what I do, not all of it, but most of it is free. Doesn't cost anything, has a creative commons license on it um, that people can reuse it in very permissive ways. Um, and I'm just like, here, have this. It's a gift. You can do what you like. You don't have to pay me. And then also, if you would like, you can support me financially. I have a Patreon. That's just how I make my money. Um, and that's available to people if they choose to use it, but it's not dependent on that. And um, yeah, I, I really love this way of living. It feels very appropriate for me. Yeah, it's. I've done a bunch of experiments with the gift economy type approaches like you're saying over the years and it's it's been really interesting because in giving has this sort of uh paradox of like okay you give with the intention of like not receiving anything however a gift is really a leveling up of commitment in a relationship if i gift you something and you receive it in a genuine way it's often an invitation to a deeper relationship mm-hmm. rather than, um, hey, it's a gift, don't worry about it, do your own thing. It, 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 there's sort of a universal pull that's like, okay, this is a more serious relationship now. Have you noticed that like people shy, and maybe you can reflect on that, but have you noticed people shy away from gift giving um, or just like, tell me the price? Um, hmm. because it is that scary, deeper commitment. Hmm. I'm not sure how much I've consciously noticed anything like that. I think um, I really try to make my own stuff as widely available as possible, including like, you know, um, a lot of it is just like available on my website or it's a recording that someone can listen to at any time or something like that or, or a drawing that I put out in the world. And so it's almost like... Um, there's not much effort required to receive it. And it also the way that I structure it, it, it's, it's available just to the whole world, to many people. And so I think a lot of the gifts that I'm giving aren't um, maybe specifically for a specific person. And so in that way, I imagine that if it was more like, Oh, I am giving you Paul a specific gift, then that might be a, a way in which those dynamics might come into play more, at least in a noticeable way to me. But I haven't noticed too much stuff like that. 
Yeah, Seth Godin has this quote I love. He says, the internet has lowered the marginal cost of generosity to zero. Mm. Um, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so it's, he was basically making the argument that you have no excuse not to like go and find your gifts and start giving. Mm. It's worked um, very well for me. I, I, I know it's, it's uh, different people have different models. And I think there are models where it makes sense to charge for something or, uh, you know, ask for money for your services and, and whatnot. But um, for me, having as much as possible the intention to do things freely and a generosity basis has been just uh, yeah, a blessing for me to live that way. Yeah, I found the word gift to be very, very useful. Um, whenever I've used the word free, um, it does not go well, meaning mm-hmm. that people just don't actually do anything with free stuff they receive. They don't mm. value it. Um, mm. When you use the word gift, you can kind of elevate the status of the thing. And mm. the approach I've taken is to sort of basically openly and generously want to give anything away. So if it, like people sort of know, I say this over and over again, if you want my book, I will happy to gift it to anyone in the world. Mm. Um, mm. However, it is also for sale because some people just like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm. I've gifted my book to people in person and they're like, what do you want me to pay me, pay you? I'm like, no, it's a gift. And they're like, no, I'm going to find your Venmo and send you something. They like feel compelled because a book is like this thing that we know has a price and like authors deserve to be paid a price, which is always funny. And I'm always wondering like, well, if you want to like give me something, you don't have to give me $10. You could give me a hundred, <laughs> but we're sort of anchored still to that. Um, that book price, the book market, the book um, transaction. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but um, mm. just some reflections I've had on like gifting and pricing. Yeah, it's really interesting because I would never want to encourage someone to not value what I'm doing. Um, and and that's, that's definitely an argument to charge for certain things, I think. Um, on the other hand, there's a certain value that I really appreciate of um, making explicit that something can cost you zero dollars. I actually mm-hmm. like reminding people of this, that, oh, no, this is, I, I like to say for a specific reason, oh, this is free. This is zero dollars. Because, um, you know, like thinking about the library, for example, I think it's just an incredible social institution to have libraries where you can go and get books for Amazing. free. And yeah, it like the best the best social institution. <laughs> it's so good. And um, it's it's good that it's free there. And I think um, I really see one of the, the central questions of our time societally being how can we have that kind of information abundance in a, in a sane way, you know, um, and don't see clear answers to that yet. But I, I would love to see more of an abundance mentality with contemporary things. And um, I think for me, I want people to know both that what I do is in almost all cases free of charge, doesn't cost money, uh, accessible. You can take it for zero dollars. I'd be happy to give it to you. And on the other hand, please know that the way that I support myself, the way that I have my living is through generosity. And I think just by making that aware to people, the people that have the desire, inclination, means to support me financially have found me and I'm, I'm making this work. So um, I need to tell 
people both of those things. Please take this for free and know how I make my living. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. It it resonates with what um, somebody I've talked to a lot, Andrew Taggart, um, also approaches in his life, and he gives like the gifts I've received from him are so genuine and so powerful that like I am like pulled to then try to give gifts back to him. And it's really beautiful when you truly open yourself up for that. So I really admired that. It's been interesting too. I've done so many experiments with the gift economy. When I was first starting to do it in 2018, you couldn't really do it. There was, I think Gumroad was the only one where you could like do zero plus, which is mm. like either free or at, offer a gift if you'd like. Um, two weeks ago, Stripe just uh, added gift pricing mm. um, to their portals, which I think is really interesting. It kind of shows that like this gift mindset is proliferating more. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully with the internet. So it'll be exciting to see more people embrace these things. Yeah, I love that model. I, the, the the book we've been talking about hasn't been released yet, but when I do, it'll be on Gumroad with a zero plus pricing thing because it, that's actually another value for me is um, with spiritual teachings in particular, I feel it's um, not appropriate to charge for them. And uh, this is something Peace Pilgrim says. She says that you injure yourself spiritually when you charge for this kind of wisdom. And so, um, you know, I think if you have a service of, or like a product, uh, then it makes a lot of sense to charge for things. But for spiritual wisdom, like how to cultivate love in your heart, it seems uh, inappropriate to me to charge for that. And then I can say, yeah, if you want to, you can give a gift for this, but please no, there's no obligation whatsoever. So the zero plus pricing model feels very appropriate for that for me. And how does that relate to your current relationship with money and how you're just seeking out to meet your needs of like warmth, um, mm-hmm. hunger, shelter, things like mm-hmm. that? Yes. Well, it helps that my life is simple. Um, I don't own a house. I don't own a car. I'm not in debt. Um, that's a blessing. Many people, of course, are in debt. Um, many people, you know, it, it almost feels like a privilege to live a simple life because many people, you know, need a house. Many people need a car. Many people need to be in debt. That makes total sense to me. And yet I feel blessed and privileged to have a simple life, to be able to go from place to place. Um, my main two expenses are transportation and food because I travel all over the world. It seems helpful to travel to different places and be, be there and, uh, do all kinds of different projects and so on. But, um, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm always working on the math for this, but currently I spend something like, I don't know, anywhere from a thousand to two thousand a month, which is pretty low expenses. And, um, you know, I, I, I do, um, have a desire to, if and when more money comes in to to use sur- like surplus funds for service projects in particular, I have I have like infinite ideas of surface projects I could do that would be good for the world, um, and so I would you know that's what I would use money for. If suddenly I made ten thousand dollars a month, I'd still spend one or two thousand dollars a month for myself. But then there's lots of great projects I could do. But um, currently my Patreon is like. I don't know, I think $800 a month or something and people make one-time gifts uh, here and there. So between all of that, um, I'm, I'm able to make it work currently. And um, yeah, that feels like a blessing to be able to live a simple life that's dedicated to being of service 
and is based in generosity, that that feels yeah really like a privilege to live that way. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I um, when I was leaving my job, somebody said to me, "How will you pay rent?" Mm. Right. So I had actually saved up some money, probably money to live like six to nine months. Where I was living, and I knew this person made like far more money than me. Mm. And I was just like, what kind of reality is this? Where like mm. you need to make a certain income this month to pay your monthly expenses, right? Mm. And like savings aren't a thing, and like there aren't other ways to like lower your co- costs. It's sort of this like my life is fixed. There's nothing I can do, mm-hmm. and it's this trap, right? And over the next year, I essentially did what you did. I lowered my cost of living down to about $800 a month. And I never felt happier. <laughs> it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I did experience like what it felt like. And I think it is a privilege because after doing that, not like everyone's doing that when you're 18. So it's like you feel like that's what you're supposed to be doing. If you can tap into that and like, live on very little when you're older, you sort of always know you can just go back there and you'll be fine. <laughs> and yes. that's something that's given me a de- deep sense of peace on uh, my path. Mm-hmm. Is that something, um, is that kind of what you mean when you're saying it's a privilege? Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, um, it reminds me of, one of the things that I've been blessed to be able to do in this life is go on specifically walking pilgrimages. That's a, a practice I've done twice now. And, um, you know, where I didn't know where I was going to stay and uh, didn't have a plan for where to go to the way, the way I practice pilgrimage, you just start walking. Basically you don't have a plan to go to a specific place. You just start walking and you trust and you trust and you trust and you trust. You come to a fork in the road. There's no, definite reason to go left or right. So you just decide and you trust your decision. And that simplicity and that practice of trusting was very helpful for me. And yeah, knowing that I can sleep like in a graveyard without a sleeping bag, if I need to, that's helpful. Um, I just need to eat food and drink water. And um, of course, for my projects, the internet is quite helpful to me having internet access, but that's basically what I need. And, um, you know, the health of my body as well. The In, in Buddhism, there's four four requisites, um, uh, food, shelter, clothing, and medicine. Um, and then, I, you know, for me in my current way of life, I need internet access. So I joke that that's the fifth <laughs> requisite. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, that's what I need. And one that, that importantly that I should mention, um, one of the ways that I make this way of life work is I stay with different people around the world. So I don't have a house. I stay with different friends who put me up for one night or six weeks or something anywhere in between. And um, so I don't pay rent and I stay with people and that, that makes this work as well that I'm, you know, I don't have to have an apartment or a house or something like that. Where did you do the pilgrimage? I did one in Vermont in 2015 and then another one in California in 2019. Yeah. Yeah, What was, what was that experience like? Well, um, they were very different. I think that um, I almost would put, uh, like, the way I would describe it is like there was a meter of how much I was trusting my experience and how much I was surrendering to what was there, which really became clear that that's the practice that you practice on pilgrimage. 
And uh, the first time, the trust meter was like very low. <laughs> it was like 15% well, in, trust. You're in Vermont too. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I um, uh, basically rushed to get back. I was like, oh, this is very hard. And, uh, you know, had various challenging experiences and wasn't trusting it and uh, could see that I wasn't trusting it. I was having a hard time trusting it. And it took time to be willing to come back to the practice of pilgrimage. And then the second time, I think the trust meter was at like, I would put it at like 80 or 90% where there's still ways I wasn't trusting, but I really went in the second time with attention. Okay. Now I know what it is to trust and I'm going to do that as fully as I possibly can. In particular, um, uh, I didn't. So if, if, if I was doing a pilgrimage like this in certain places in Asia, for example, people would know that what a religious wanderer is and how to support them and be like, please stay in my home. Please mm-hmm. let me feed you. There would be some context for that. And there's not that context in America. And so in particular, um, I usually would stay in public places where I didn't have to ask for permission. Some exceptions there where people let me stay in their, at their house, on, like on their lawn or whatever. Um, but by default, people are like, what are you doing? Uh, what is this weird guy doing? And then, um, yeah, there, there was no context for me to be willing to trust that if I asked people for food, that they would give me food. So I ended up basically purchasing food both times. I'd spend like $20 a day just going to eat food. And um, I think that there's a way of doing pilgrimage where I would trust that people would give me food even. And uh, I haven't quite worked out how to do that because of my own relationship to American culture. But um <laughs> Yeah. yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, challenges, I think, in the way we see people who like are wandering or don't have a home, right? Yes. Um, yeah, it's, I, I could definitely see it being easier in Asia. I mean, I know me and my wife actually want to do something like that in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can basically just stay at any temple. That's mm-hmm. like a mm-hmm. thing yes. people do. <laughs> yes. uh, so you could just kind of use this like term people use and they'll be like, oh, okay, of course. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, you might get some weird looks, but like at least there is some foundational context and um, cultural memory around those things. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I think it's uh, unfortunate that we don't have that context in our country. And um, I think that um, it, it's sort of, again, sort of a privilege to go on something like a walking pilgrimage. And so, yeah, it's unfortunate that I couldn't lean on that. But I think more about, um, you know, like homeless people in our country and uh, people that literally are on the streets. And there's, you know, of course, there is great kindness that many people extend to Mm -hmm. people that are in that unfortunate position. But also there's a lot of cruelty and not kindness towards those people. And um, that, that hurts to notice and see that there's an attitude of, suspicion or distrust or lack of generosity or kindness. And uh, I think it behooves us to cultivate an attitude of kindness and generosity towards others. Yeah. Can, can that be cultivated? Mm, Absolutely. Leading, leading question. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it absolutely can be cultivated. I think uh, there, there are many spiritual virtues and they can all be cultivated and being kind and generous is one. And uh, the practice of loving kindness, of course, is, is one way of doing that. Yes. Yeah. W- maybe tell us a little bit more about what loving kindness is. I think uh, the, f- the first time I did it, I can go right back to that moment. It, w- it was mm. so powerful. And um, 
just as you kind of bring alive different people and send them love. It, it was pretty, pretty wild experience. What was that like for you? Just the, the feeling of love mm-hmm. in like coursing through your body and like mm-hmm. that you could just generate that. And I think I sort of resolved some conflicts I had. Mm. Uh, and it made me realize that, wow, all, all these things just start internally. Nobody's doing anything to us, mm. right? I mean, of, of course, sometimes people are, but like a lot of times our conflicts are created in our own minds, our own bodies, attachment to those uh, feelings and things like that. So yeah, definitely very powerful. Mm. Mm. Yes, yes. I'm glad you had that experience and um, that's, yeah, that's what I'm hoping to help people cultivate. I think, um, you know, loving kindness comes from the Buddhist tradition um, and it, it, it likely predated Buddhism actually, but wow. um, has, has certainly uh, been most cultivated in Buddhism. I think you find similar themes in other religions, but in terms of how to do it as a practical technique, I think Buddhism really has uh, the monopoly on the market there. And, um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm hoping to help people do. And I think of it basically as, um, cultivating, intentionally creating loving thoughts and feelings. And there's a whole spectrum of kinds of thoughts and feelings you could have, and you're intentionally creating those. So that's in contrast to say following the breath or something like that, where you're just observing the breath without trying to change it. Instead, you're actually intentionally creating something in this case, loving thoughts and feelings. And, um, yeah, there's, uh, just a whole breadth of sort of beautiful healing, connecting, uh, wonderful experiences you can have when you start to go down that road. What's a good place to start uh, if you're curious about these things? Hmm. Well, um, you know, I think um, if you resonate with the way that I'm talking about it, you can check out my stuff. I have a weekly event on Saturdays and uh, that's recorded. So the recordings are available and I'm working on this book and um, you know, you can go to Tashin.com slash love and that has all of my meta related stuff. And um, there's also other teachers out there though. So if you don't like the way that I talk about it, there's just an abundance of amazing teachers about this. Uh, I've really liked Rob Berbea and, um, you know, there's certainly other teachers as well. So, um, yeah, it's a wonderful practice sort of regardless of how you frame it or who you work with or, or whatnot. What have you learned from, uh, Rob Berbea's teachings? Mm. You know, he talks about such a breadth of specific teachings, both from Buddhism, but also from say Western psychology and trying to up, update, uh, you know, connect those things together. But, um, and th- those are amazing. Those, like the way he talks about the traditional Buddha Dharma has been amazing. And the, the way that he um, integrated imaginal practice and when he ended up calling the soul-making Dharma, very inspiring to me. But the thing that most um, impacted me was really his presence. Um, I think that he, if you listen to recordings of him speaking, such a gentle, kind, sweet, loving presence that was very healing for me personally. And, and, and also, um, very authentic, incredibly authentic person. He wasn't trying to be someone other than himself. And that comes out in, in so many ways where 
he was like just a guy, basically. He was very ordinary, and he was this Rob Berbea guy, and just ordinary guy. He wasn't trying to be someone special or um, be, some, you know, attain some concept of who he was supposed to be. He was just this guy, Rob, you know, a really lovely person and totally ordinary at the same time. And that that was a blessing for me to really encounter both the depth of love and curiosity and joy that was there. And also just the total ordinariness of just being a person. And I think um, when you have spiritual heroes like the Buddha or peace pilgrim or my own teacher, so are you, it's easy to fall into a sense of like, Oh, these are the, the perfect people that have truly become perfect in some way. And, and gradually, of course, I realized that my teacher was just a guy too, and had challenges and things like that. And that presumably peace pilgrim and the Buddha had their own stuff too. But, um, but I could really see that just so clearly from Rob that he was just a guy, just totally ordinary and, and yet so loving and so wise. And that came through not just in spite of his ordinariness, but even because of his ordinariness. And that, touched me even more than any specific teaching that he had, which uh, there are many that have touched me, but just his presence was such a gift to the world. I love that. Uh, Maybe that can be a goal at the end of your life, just a guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That's nice. Yes. Yes. I wrote a blog post about him and it is sort of based on a a quote that he wrote about the different aspects of himself. And um, I, I, uh, I forget the exact title, but it's like Rob Berbea, uh, werewolf, um, something else. I forget the second thing. And then it was like ordinary guy. It's like, uh, yeah, let me just look up real quick what it was. Uh, yeah, I can link it too. Oh yeah. Rob Berbea, ordinary guy, werewolf, eternal wanderer. It's like all of those things <laughs> and, and more, there's more in the original quote that he said, but, um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a worthy goal. I think ordinariness. How do all the different things you're drawn to um, fit together? Love, mm-hmm. curiosity, empowerment, and now as you're talking about them, uh, exploring like gifts and what that means. Yes. I think that finding this, there's a certain frame that I've found in the last year or so where it has helped me to understand the different things that I'm doing and see how they fit together. And it's sort of these three, these three things love, curiosity, and empowerment. And um, the yeah, so love is spreading love, metta meditation, loving kindness, the Brahma Viharas, um, teaching that, inspiring people to practice it. That's one part. Second is following my curiosity. So that's, um, you know, I have my podcast and my blog. And then also just, I go down weird rabbit holes of researching things and uh, learning about different things. And that's, that's following my curiosity. And then empowerment is really seeing everyone as having this gift or this vow or purpose and seeing, is it possible for me to help others to give their gifts, to live their vow and looking for systematic structured ways to do that. And um, all three of those things feel like sort of central activities that I'm doing in my service projects. And um, I think if I just did any one of them that uh, I I think there's specific failure modes that I would run into if I just did one of them where like um, if I just focused on love, I think I'd be very happy, but I'd get a little bored. (laughs) And then uh, if I just focused on following my curiosity, it'd be like too interesting and not very grounded. And then um, 
if I just focused on empowering other people, I wouldn't be putting my own gifts forward where it's like focusing too much on other people and not my own a celebration of my own skills and dreams and visions. And so um, having sort of a portfolio approach to, yeah, these are roughly the three things that I work on and I spend different amounts of time on them uh, has made it so that I'm both fulfilled personally and really um, somewhat focused and intentional on what kinds of gifts I'm trying to give to the world. Yeah. Do you think the best way to show up and do these things is really to take care of yourself first or asked another way? Like, do you think like serving others can really be the primary aim or is the best way to serve others sort of like as Joseph Campbell says, like save yourself so you can save the world? Hmm. Hmm. I think that it's easy for a concept of service to be equated with a felt sense of self-sacrifice, which mm. may look noble, but I think is ultimately unkind to yourself and others because it's not sustainable to simply sacrifice yourself for others. Um, I think it's a, it's a false virtue to self-sacrifice in that way. And for me, a concept of service has to involve a dedication to my own joy and delight and satisfaction. And so I'm really maximizing for two variables at any given time. One is my own joy and fun and fulfillment, and the other is benefit and service towards others. And I do not want to have to compromise either of those. If push came to shove, I would choose my own fun and joy. But I think my experience has often been the case that when I trust my own sense of fun and enjoyment and delight, that often has beneficial repercussions for others that just aren't obvious or clear at the time where you're like, like, for example, I started drawing last year. I have an art practice. No one said, Tashin, please start drawing. It would just <laughs> seem fun to do. Uh, and yet gaining those skills has been very helpful to me and beneficial for my service projects. That's it's. I still do it because it's fun, right? I'm not just doing it just to be of service to others, but it wasn't obvious that it would help me in that way. Or, um, you know, th there was no reasoned case I could make for it. And yet it has proven to be of benefit to others. And so um, if push came to shove, I would choose fun. That seems like a more trustworthy uh, metric for me or a compass. But um, I think really trying to maximize for both of those things has been my my guiding light there. Yeah, I definitely resonate with this. I think I think a lot about sustainability. And what I've realized is that sacrifice or like suffering for like some future potential trade-off is basically just an unsustainable failure mode for me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, at the same time, this is sort of radical, especially for our culture where the default belief is like, I do need to suffer because, well, that's what you do in a job. That's what you do need to make money for future payoffs, paying for school, paying for daycare, like all these things. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't know if that's a question. Um, do you think it is radical in tension with today's culture? Absolutely. I think um, on so many levels, I, it's like hard to know where to begin, but um, Really, really caring about both of these variables is 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 radical. It 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 it's radical in the sense of um, 
defying contemporary society and structures. I think there are people that care about one or the other, but it's rare to care about both in a certain way. And um, yeah, I think one one of the things that's radical is it it uproots what I see as the default notion of what work is. Right. That that at least that I received is. Um, again, like nine to five, five days a week, have your weekend, retire when you're 65. Like that's sort of baked into so many things. And I was never called to that, never felt like I wanted to do it. And the way I think about it for myself at this point in my life is I want to work every day. I want to work every day. I want to work in a way that's both joyful for me and beneficial to others. And if I do that, um, there's, there's no meaningful distinction between play and work. And uh, I actually want to do that every single day. You, it would be um, hurtful to me to prevent me from doing that. I'd be like, why are you stopping me from doing this? And uh, I don't have to force myself to work work because it's so enjoyable for me. And so that's, that's, um, that's, that's in stark contrast to the, the, the function of work that, structures our economy and society for, for most people right now, as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's uh, have you read Stephen Cope's book, the great work of your life? No, I've, I've not heard of it. Uh, so I feel like it would definitely resonate, but um, mm. he talks about like finding your Dharma and mm. sort of this understanding that there is this great work of your life that can be found. And people all throughout history have talked about it. And when you found, find it, it is this deep sense of like connectedness to yourself, to the world, to the things you're doing and to other people. And then once you find that, the only thing that matters is like designing your life around letting it emerge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So I sort of call this like the great, the great work of your life is really finding the work you want to keep on doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel this way too. Like I think writing, especially I do other stuff. Like I'm attempting a higher degree of difficulty of like money making. So I probably push the like sacrifice a little more than I want, but it's way less mm-hmm. than my previous life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the work that I'm drawn to, if somebody took that away from me, that'd be a human rights violation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. And if anyone took away my previous jobs, I would just been like, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. the world will go on. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, I, I love that distinction of like, yeah, you, you feel compelled to do it every day. And it's, it's a more vague, it's so impossible to like put in a container anyway. Yes. Yes. And it's not, it's not tiring. It's not exhausting. It doesn't deplete me. Uh, it's energizing. It's renewing, um, and that—that's in. I think that's in distinction as well. I think that. I mean, that's that's why you get burnout from people is um, that they're repeatedly doing something that um, is exhausting physically, but I think also um, morally, spiritually, ethically, where you are forcing yourself into life choices that aren't aligned with your deepest values and your deepest goals and ambitions. And if, if you do that, that's, that's, I think that's the root cause of burnout. And, uh, in a lot of cases, at least, and, um, 
the way out of that is living in accordance with your, your deepest values. And it's not easy to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying it's easy, but um, it is a blessing to, to go in that direction rather than the direction of uh, yeah, burning yourself out. That's beautiful. Um, what, where, what else do you want to leave with um, people um, or point them in a direction if they, if they want to learn more about what you're working on? Hmm. Well, my website's Tashin, Tashin.com, T-A-S-S-H-I-N.com. And then I'm on Twitter as well with my last name, Fogelman, after my first name. And um, I think, yeah, that's where to find me. Um, I just want to come back to this idea of um, learning lessons and and giving gifts. I I think that that's finding that framing has been so helpful to me personally. And um, I think that that frame is not dependent on any of the specific things that we've talked about and fits with so many worldviews of like, oh, you don't have to be a Buddhist or heard of Peace Pilgrim or see things in a particular way to be like, oh, what, what can I learn from my life? What can I do to be of service to other people? What would be joyful for me to do that would be a gift to give to other people? Um, what What's that? And um, I think that's that's worth pondering in your own heart after this conversation. It's a great question to leave us with. Thank you, Tashin. My pleasure, friend. Thank you for listening to The Pathless Path. I love having these conversations. And if you want to support me, you can rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow me on YouTube, where I post all the video interviews of this podcast as well. Finally, you can always support me by buying my book. The Pathless Path. It's a book I'm really proud of and has most of my best thinking and probably my best writing in it. And you can get it for less than 20 bucks. So grab that. It's in the show notes. And thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold. It's going to hit 50000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50000 which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com membership, and you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.